0: Tonight's talk is uh, more of a focus on the awakening factor of investigation as we are transitioning into vipassana. I wanted to say that um, each of you are in very much uh, trusting your practice in, in an individual individual place with this transition. So I can't say exactly how each of you will transition. But I will encourage you to. Some people haven't shifted to Brahma-viharas anyway, so they don't have a transition. They've been doing Vipassana anyway. So no no, no worries there, right? But some people, you know, it's just, some people are just, they love Vipassana, they incline toward it, and shifting now will be a great relief. It will. It's just like, finally, you know. And other people, they love, they love the Brahma-viharas, and they'll be like, not... Oh God! Oh, you know, just let's not shift yet, right? So, there'll be the extremes of people, and then people in the middle, and um, the talks and instructions will be sort of helping people find their way with it. This is—we're shifting. Instead of we've been doing Brahmavihara with a Vipassana flavor, and now we're doing Vipassana with a Brahmavihara flavor. It's a shift. <laughs> Hmm. And the shift a lot is in um, tonight's talk. It's it's just the first three awakening factors, mindfulness, investigation, energy, joyful interest. It's like it'll be a kind of light sketch of them. So, the human existential predicament is coming to terms with the vast range of joy and sorrow in this world. And to move from kind of a childhood and the ways in which we have to defend the vulnerable heart where where we uh, come in this world with Um, the heart necessarily closes to learn how to function well. And the spiritual journey is one of learning to open again, but bringing gradually in that, as we gradually open, gradually bringing in the protection of the mindfulness practice and the Brahma-Vihara practice. The garden is a great place to look at, the flowers and to see that um, what we tend to want is this practice to happen very quickly. And so we will tend to want, if we looked at all each other like flower buds, each of us tend to want to pull the petals open. We can tell everybody else that it's fine, that it's a gradual opening, right? But for ourselves, we want to pull the petals open and it kills the flower. So, so, remembering that the, um, it's gradual because we have to learn how to replace the defense system gradually with the mindfulness practice. Meaning, on another level, you know, it's like that attachment to joy and the aversion to pain or fear of pain is the defense system. So we're gradually replacing that reactive mind with a, a flexible um, mindfulness practice as well as bringing in the brahma so we can be truly, genuinely with things as they are, not the fake pretending that things are okay the way they are. So this uh existential human predicament, the question, who am I is the is or who are you or who are we is a it's a very deep spiritual question, that inquiry. Not in this vipassana practice, it is not done through the thought process. So in vipassana it's like um it's pure research, pure research, meaning when the investigation is pure, not motivated by aversion or attachment, we really start to be genuinely able to explore this moment-to-moment experience that we're born into. Sixth sense-door awareness. Srinasar um said about, you know, who, who am I or who are you? He said, you are not even a human being. You just are a point of awareness, coextensive with time and space and beyond both. If you ask me, Who are you? my answer would be, Nothing in particular. And the question then is, Well, if you're nothing in particular, <laughs> then you must be universal. And he said, Well, what is it to be universal? not as a concept, but as a way of life. Not to separate, not to oppose, but to understand and love whatever contacts you is living universally. To be able to say truly, I am the world, the world is my own. Every existence is my existence. Every consciousness is my consciousness. Every sorrow is my sorrow and every joy is my joy. This is universal life. Yet my real being, and yours too, is beyond the universal and therefore beyond all categories of the particular and the universal. It is what it is." So that's the transition we're making, (laughs) in a nutshell. (laughs) <laughs> I remember when I did that retreat that I described with Ruth Denison where I had to go to romper Room every walking period and then, you know, she finally said to me, what is not what you want to get, right? You know, it's, um, at the end of that retreat, uh, I used to always be cooking and taking care of the teachers, and I brought her some food. At the end, I went back to cooking for her. And uh, I said, well, w- we could call her Ruth Ruth. You know, I just, I just want to practice to integrate into my daily life. You know, I don't really want to be doing all these <laughs> retreats. Right? I just want it to integrate into my life. And she said, Dolling. darling. You do not need integration. You need penetration. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, okay, that's a a good one for the next couple years. Thank you very much. (laughs) But she was always so like, you don't need integration, darling. You need penetration. But she never, you know, those teachers, they never explain. Right? They just say what, say it very strongly and just like, okay, right. Um, it took me years to understand that. There was no way anything could integrate. I hadn't even understood what I was doing. The practice hadn't penetrated deeply into the whole body, all the body, all the mind, all the heart. my first interview with Sayadaw Upandita, which I may describe someday, but uh, at the end of it, he said, it takes so much hard work for wisdom to penetrate the heart. And I was like, ah, there's Ruth, right? right? There she is again. You know, that, that understanding, it takes so much hard work for wisdom to penetrate the heart. So we've we've established a base of the heart now, and then it's like time to bring more wisdom in. Of course, we've been bringing it in, but now the focus is more of that <coughs> Brahma-vihara flavor, but the vipassana. The third Zen patriarch said, the great way is easy for those who cease to cherish their preferences. It always was translated as the great way is easy for those who give up their preferences. And we're very lucky when we get a good translator. It's it's so fortunate. To, and so that's so much clearer for those who cease to cherish the preference. So there again is that Acceptance that, of course, we have preferences. Of course we want to hold on to joy. Of course we want to, you know, get rid of pain. So if we start there with that unconditional acceptance, then we can see that, but we can't. Actually, we can't control it. Do you see the difference? And it's like, to, to, to get that, uh, you know, you might go through the lunch line and have, oh, gee, well we finally got a little cheese parmesan right but there could have been more if you like cheese right you know it's like wow we're getting somewhere but it's you know it could have been more right but actually there wasn't but you can you need to be able to allow that like you know the preference of more right or it could be that you don't eat cheese and you know why did they put that out there or why did they put it there to tempt me? You know, when, I wish I could just put even our thought streams, every person's, you know, thought stream as you go through the lunch line, just to, just to broadcast it, right? It's amazing. And to, you know, we see what everybody else is doing, right? And that's, a, that's something, just to watch the judgments. And we'll think, oh, we don't want anyone to judge us, but we're judging other people, you can't control it. So then it comes down to accepting the judging, allowing it, it, and then just seeing, it's just judging. You don't have to buy into it at all. We don't have to cherish it, just to see that's what people tend to be doing when they're going through the line. So in this practice, um, more than ever, it's it's seeing that um, it's the lowering of expectation that's wisdom. It's just that as you practice more and more, you'll see that you can't control much. And so, of course, when we have high expectation, um, we get so disappointed because we think we can control right and it's that that lowering of the agenda of course okay okay it's so much fun to teach when people have been practicing for a while and practiced a long time it's like of course we have an agenda at times of course we have expectation but you start to see that you don't have to buy into it again it doesn't have to have any power over you at all So that wanting to manipulate and fix is part of um, the Vipassana practice, is being able to, the willingness to see it more and more. So I'll go into this a bit later, but I I don't want to forget. So it's like vitaka vichara, Steve mentioned it again this morning. It's, it's, this is the basis of everything. in in both Brahma, Vihara, Vipassana, but it's, it's basically, uh, you know, it's like, where is the attention? What is attention? That's, that's a, you know, what is it? We talk about it, but what is it? And sometimes when I'm practicing, I silently go, (laughs) Yoo-hoo, where are you? You know, where did it go? Where does it go? It's like it slips off, but if you can find the attention and connect it with something. That's the first aspect of concentration. We talk a connection. And then the second part is called sustaining. And so that ability to connect with something real, not an embellishment, not a fantasy, but you're connecting it with something real. Say so you connect it with the beginning of the movement of the breath. The sustaining is sustaining it concurrently right with it as it's happening as best we can through the beginning, middle, end. I like to sometimes play with the word sustain and call it commit. Because that's a word in our culture that can be so loaded, but it's an important word. If you can connect or commit through the beginning, middle, end of a sound, beginning, middle, end of hearing, beginning, middle, end of breathing, or or a, a step, then we might stand a chance to be with the beginning, middle, end of anger. Or beginning, middle, end of shame. Or it's like that's the practice of connecting and sustaining with, with easy, easy, right? The breath, How how often do we do it? Make it to the end. <laughs> It's like almost impossible right you know you have to like get it air element can you stay with it through the beginning will end well and then when you start really getting quiet you start to see that you you're being you're going along with the beginning you're right with it and a thought happens there's nothing wrong with that it's like a thought happens then you can just shift back probably you're almost to the end of the in-breath You might catch the end. It might be after you practice for a while. This is the idea of momentary segments. After for a while you might be with the beginning of the breath. You get through, you might notice three thoughts, two sounds, three body sensations before you get to the end of the breath. That's good practice. You might practice just standing up over and over again. Of course we're doing it so much on a retreat and it's at the beginning you can barely do it. And then maybe after a while you might notice 20 sensations in the body rather than one. It it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm giving it as an example why we pick momentary segments, because it's the practice, the repetition of it on the retreat where you, you start giving yourself a chance to notice more and more within a a small area. When I did the um, CD on mindful driving, you know, it was so much fun because my momentary segments when I was teaching, I taught mindfulness practice through driving. It was like we, we would go telephone pole by telephone pole. It was great fun. Beginning, middle, end of the between telephone poles. It's the same practice. If you just try to drive to wherever you're going and you don't have momentary segments, you're not gonna keep it going. Just like if you try to get from here to the door out there. I love the practice for this reason, because it's like, it's such a, a fun challenge. You can't make it from where I'm sitting to the door out there and not get totally lost. It's impossible. It's awesome. It's so humbling. Right? And then, you know, what brings you back? Mindfulness. The more you remember to come back, the more you'll remember to come back. The less you remember to come back, the less you remember to come back. It's not rocket science. (laughs) That's what's humbling. So we can't control when we go off, meaning sometimes we'll see a thought, clearly we won't even get distracted by it. But some, most of the time the thoughts—we, we, the thought comes, we, we believe the content, and um, we can't control that. Check it out. It's the greatest um, teaching on anatta possible. If you could control it, you would. It's very upsetting that we can't, it's disturbing that we can't control our thought process. So it's like if you start to get that it has nothing to do with that you went off, it's that when you notice it, what do you do? It's all when you notice, do you decide, well, that's really interesting? And then five, you know, five hours later, we come back, right? That's how early practice is, you know? And then, then you start getting the ability to kind of make the choice, oh, okay, I'll come back to where I was in the step. Maybe I was halfway through the step, and you finish the step. And so this ability to bounce back, the resilience, starts to get so um, seamless at times. Like I say, high-energy times. You know, high-energy times, go for it seclude yourself, go for it. It's like, there's courage, there's energy, low energy. I might not have the expectation I could have a great adventure from my seat to the door. If I'm really tired, I would have a very different way I'd walk out. It would be like every man for themselves. (laughs) it's, It's just a whole different approach. I might really just try to be bottom of the feet, knowing walking, just kind of, you get to know yourself and what you need to do when you're low energy, medium energy, high energy, without expectation. Sometimes sleepiness can just go away in a second. And sometimes sleepiness can come in a second. One way you get to see where these practices, um, where this transition can be so interesting from the Brahma-vihara to Vipassana is in this, well, Srinasargadatta Maharaj, when he described uh, the practice as, Love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Between the two my life flows. One of um I feel one of the great teachings that author c. s. Lewis had for himself and offered us was uh, he lived in a very um cerebral community at Oxford, and he fell in love with a woman quite late in life married had a kid, and um she was from New York and she moved over they got married and she had cancer already, like she didn't know it, but she died fairly quickly. And this is where that phrase comes, he was so beside himself because he finally dared, right? He finally had the courage to connect and commit for the first time. And that question, like, why love when it hurts so much to lose it? This is a human predicament. It's a, de- a very deep question, very profound. When I, where I grew up, from when I was one years old, it it was um, on Lake Cotituate outside of Boston. And it was my, really, my only refuge, you know, going in the house was (laughs) tough, you know, so I took much more and more refuge outside. And I always could, like, even if it took hours, if I sat by the lake, even at three or four years old, I would know, I would find that place that I knew I would, was okay. I would find reassurance, winter, spring, summer, fall. And then, when I got older, the lake died. And it was so painful for me. It was like, here was my refuge. And it was at that time on the planet, there was this um, one woman in the neighborhood who started the League of Women Voters, and uh, was a scientist. And she uh, studied, studied, got other people men and women, to study. And they found it was that the lake died from the algae that came from people's lawns, that the fertilizer would go into the lake and um, killed it. It really killed it. And it's in my lifetime it's come back because they were able to stop people doing the, the the fertilizer and stop the runoff in one lifetime. And that was um, such a beautiful example of being willing to love something so much and to see it die, but also to see it come back. It's not always like that, we know. British Columbia, Emily Carr, <laughs> you're very lucky. When she got older, she had a breakdown and uh, was such a great painter. but um, she had to start writing instead of painting for a while. And she wrote a number of books. And this very small quote is from the book of the Book of Small. That was her nickname, Small. So she's writing about her childhood, um, Victoria, Vancouver Island area. There was much to see as we went up the river and we went slowly. I'll say that again. And we went slowly. There was much to see as we went up the river and we went slowly because there were so many things to get over and under. Sometimes there were little rims of muddy beach pocked with a dent of deer hooves. Except for the stream, the place was very quiet. It was like the stillness of a bird held in the hand with just its heart throbbing. That's Vipassana. But each moment changes, right? You're holding this very delicate aliveness. It's life itself, right? It's so delicate. Each moment is new. It's just so hard for us. We don't want that instability. We don't want that um, inexplicable, unfathomable change. And yet, there is this point in awareness, nothing in particular, that we are, that's constantly changing. And so here is that vulnerability. So, when Suzuki Roshi coined the the phrase, soft readiness for mindfulness, it's so perfect. Readiness Readiness for anything to happen. Upandita would always say that to me. Vipassana means that you're ready for anything to happen. You're not attached to anything. You're not attached to any way of practice. Soft readiness is so smart. If your heart, or mind, hard head, you know. <laughs> In Hawaii I just love it, you know, it's like that keep, keep cool head, it's like the opposite of it is hard head, right? You've got a hard head means you don't have soft readiness. Yeah, so it's that softness means that without, without that softness you can't be flexible because it's changing. If, you, if, you, if the heart is hard, mind hard, the awareness is hard, you can't be with the change. I tend to like different ways of describing mindfulness. Like the Sreena he said, mindfulness is the intention to understand rather than to judge experience. Rather than to judge. We, and it's the reminder that we're so good at judging. We, and not only are we good at judging, but we're trained well in it. We don't, we don't need much more training right this is not our issue is judgment so it's not that you can get rid of it and you don't want to demonize it or reject it but you're trying to learn how to shift out of this cerebral defense system the thought process that we're so good at analyzing we're so good at analyzing and to really see that the top of the head is the tip of the iceberg and we're missing 99% 99% of our, non, our non-conceptual experience. And that requires remembering to come back and coming down. Remembering to coming come back and coming down. If you're really caught in thought, bottom of the feet. Hands. Front of the body. Yeah, it's like, whew, there's no end to it. Because our training, it's not like about right or wrong, it's about our training and how to balance it. So the mindfulness... um, And I'll go into this in another talk, because I didn't want to give you a lot of, too many words, but it, you know, the, um, there's so many qualities in mindfulness. So I'm jumping to investigation without doing a more in-depth um, aspects to it at this point in time. But I've touched base on remembering to be here, recognizing what's happening, accepting, and so Investigation and interest are a little bit different in terms of technically. But we're talking about investigation next. Because in the awakening factors, it goes from mindfulness to investigation. Just simply for tonight, investigation is the willingness not to know what's happening. And it's critical. It's everything. If you think you know what's happening, you're not in the present moment. Because every moment changes, it's changing. So you can't possibly know what the next moment is. It's that ungraspable. So it requires that pure, genuine humility. Because when we think we know, that's going back into the head. And that's the security. Of course there's that, we want the security of nailing it shut, that's a bird. that's anger, that's fear, that's, you know, that's memory, that's, it's like um, without inviting in the rest of the experience. And so, like, you've heard us say, you know, take your time, let something emerge. When you even take a step, that step is new. Every time you take a breath, that breath is new. You can't possibly know what it is. It's not possible. That's insecure. So the reason I like the holding the baby bird in the hand and the heartbeat is because each moment is newborn. It's that new. This is a, from a great poet from Ch- China, Xilin Yun, he was born in 385, he died in 433. He became a political um, exile and then kept protesting things that were happening and was put to death. He was a great, great man, great poet. But he spent many years in exile, and he was the beginning of the, um, he was said to be the first person that started the mountains and rivers, Chinese poetry, tradition, very influential. Following along the south bank that crosses out front, the snaking north cliff that looms behind, I'm soon lost in thick forests, the nature of dusk and dawn in full view. And for bearings, I trust myself to the star-filled night skies." Again, this is this practice. It's like the, the, the investigation is the willingness to be lost. It's, it's that pure, genuine exploration, not always accessible. But it really means that we're not investigating what's happening um, with um, trying to get rid of it. We're not investigating what, what happens with that. With trying to get something, that isn't investigation. So it, it's remembering that. Um, The bare attention means, you know, you'll hear us instruct if you're with the sound. Of course the thought process will happen, but bring the attention back to the textures, vibration as they're changing. If you're with a physical sensation or sensations, you might be aware of knee. Or even then you might be aware of warmth or tingling. And it's like not to just throw out the words, but just to take the time to receive... Not through the thought process, but through the textures and vibrations. What is real, not embellished, through the thought process. Of course, and then to say, of course, a thought about it will come up. And so you just are aware of that. No problem. You don't get in a struggle with the thought process. You notice it, and then you come back to the wordless. So you're spending more and more time in the non-conceptual wordless and and uh, not hassled or oppressed by the thought process. It's not a problem. It's just thinking. So basically... True inquiry is always into something, not out of something. So if we're trying to get or avoid, we're not inquiring. And so, so, you know, you might be wondering, well, why? (laughs) But we, um, the insight, the understanding in this practice comes from connecting and sustaining with the non-conceptual. So that, that's why. It's like you're you're connecting your attention with the truth, not from a memory. So your thought about something is usually a memory, right? It's a memory from the past. But we're connecting with what's real and true in the present that isn't conceptual. And so that gives us a chance for this insight or understanding to arise. And it, it's not something you force or push, it's just by putting in your time. And it... Often what we think is, we get frustrated because we think we need to maintain it for a long period. If you do it for a few seconds, it has great impact. Genuine investigation has such great impact. And sometimes we have to scurry up into thinking <laughs> to feel more secure again. You know, that's, it's a defense. And it's to um, not demonize it, to understand it. So we call it, it's hard to describe, but we call it dropping into non-conceptual, or falling into it, out of the conceptual, out of the thought process. And part of it is, is the practice is, it's like you're connecting but not controlling. And of course, what this hap, what where this, controlling starts to become observable, is by committing. So part of what we're meant to be seeing is the controlling mind. We're meant to be seeing aversion and attachment, and we, when the aversion comes, we think we shouldn't have it, that we shouldn't react. But when aversion is happening, that's just the controller. That's all. And it comes, you see it more and more clearly from sustaining the attention through something. Why? just like with the lake that I loved. You can't, if you connect, you can't control. And um, we don't want to see it. We don't want to face the disappointment or the loss. But that's how it is. What is the loss? Each moment is falling away. You, you, You can't go back. see how different it is from the Brahma You're all looking at me like, okay, when are you going, can we go back to Mudita? <laughs> Please, now. <laughs> and that's fine, right? You have that as something to shift back to, but not constantly, you know, right? It's like you can use it as a support. So investigation leads ultimately to equanimity, because you start seeing that you can investigate anything. And you start seeing that the equanimity is impartiality. It's impartial. So you equally are interested in in aversion, as you would be joy. You're equally interested in physical pain, as you would be happiness or compassion. It's like you start to see that the awareness, the liberated awareness, is not chained by experience. You're not chained by your preferences. You're not oppressed by experience itself. You start having an awareness that's free. It can, it, it isn't chained. This is, this is, this is the most important. This is about freedom. And the um, serenity, the true serenity, comes from deeper and deeper wisdom. Less and less partiality. Because you have less and less need to control, and you're rejecting less and less. You're including more and more of life. Less and less fear. Less and less need for control. And when we, when you hear, love tells me I'm everything, again, which most of us like, right? It's like, we can't hear enough of that. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing, you know, it's like, okay, right? You know, some people prefer it, I'm not, that, but it's not as um, popular. <laughs> we wouldn't say it's as popular, but it's so important. And one of the descriptions I like of Nisargadatta, of emptiness, is, or nothingness, he says, your true home is nothingness. But he describes it. He, it's, if you hear this, it's so brilliant. He says, the nothingness is the emptiness of all content. That's really important. It's not any annihilation of anything. It's very particular. What is it? It's the emptiness of the believing the content of your thought. So he said it's um, empty means uncluttered by memories and expectations. Uncluttered by memory and expectation. Agenda or ambition. He said it's like the happiness of open spaces. So we hear nothingness and emptiness, and really it scares us. But when we think of it as like when you clean your room, right, and everything is kind of uncluttered. And then you might go out to the to the beach at low tide and feel that that uncluttered um, spaciousness. That that's what Nothingness is emptiness. So what that would mean is, there's a lot more space between thought. There's a lot more space between moments where um, they're moving very quickly. But because there's this this impartiality, the spaciousness is the... um, Instead of like, not, no, not this, yes, that, no, this, yes, that, that, that starts becoming less and so there's less clutter, there's less stopping. There's a great story from the very first time I went to work at this meditation center in 78. Um, there was a yogi at the three-month retreat that uh, kind of liked being alone and practicing alone. And he was ambivalent about being with other people practicing anyway. And so kind of the first week or two went by, and um, he had so much aversion to people. Just so much aversion. And, you know, everyone was trying to help him learn to understand what, that the aversion was happening inside. <laughs> but he left. And he went to this place, this beautiful place, next to a stream, a cabin next to a stream, a really beautiful flowing stream. And he got there. Uh, I, know, I know this person. And he was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> you know, he got rid of the problem. Right? No more aversion. But you can't escape it. So what's so great, like he's, he was there for a few days and after a week he found himself like knee deep in the stream rearranging the rocks <laughs> so that the sound was better. <laughs> he was having aversion to the sound, right? And it was like, oh. Oh. That's what they were talking about. <laughs> so he came back. He missed a couple weeks. He had more like a six-week retreat. But, you know, it was like, great, right? And this is what we do. This is the the preference. We think, oh, no. <laughs> you know, if I just eat a little less of this and I go in the hall, it's going to be better, right? You know that way that we just try to tweak it a little bit so that we'll get back to that sitting we had two years ago or two minutes ago. It's so humbling. So when we talk about loss, what takes courage in this practice is we get lost in aversion. We get lost in attachment. We get lost in delusion, confusion. And so in this practice, you're meant to be trying to pull it back. If, you're, if you think something is bothering you, you try to pull it back to the, your heart and feel the pain of the wanting or the not wanting. It's like, it's it's happening in here. It has nothing to do with out there. So when we, when we can't pull it back, we're lost in the object of the wanting, right? We think we want something out there, but if that's being lost, what's actually happening is the wanting's happening in the mind, in the heart. And it's, the Buddha said, it's the suffering that ends suffering. To be willing to take responsibility, finally, for it. To not, not blame it on everything else. Stopping the blaming, stopping that endless wanting, but just like, feel it. And then the the delusion, it's not getting lost in the confusion. It's owning it. Confusion's fine. Wanting's fine. Aversion's fine we might as well get used to it. We're doing it anyway. And we, and we damage ourselves and others so much through it. And I do like to give the example, if you've ever seen E.T. You know, E.T. And he, go, he, he goes, ow! <laughs> you know, he hits that funny finger and he goes, ow! That's what taking responsibility means. <laughs> ow! Oh. The more you get how much it hurts, the more you'll take responsibility cuz we just dump it. We'll just dump it. We want we want it to we want it to be out there so we can get rid of it, but it doesn't So in this um, process of, I like to think of it, you're, you're, if you think of a stream, it's like you kind of, um, you're running and jumping in the stream and flowing along in it. That's sixth sense door awareness. You have to kind of get quiet enough and have an anchor enough to kind of be concurrent enough to jump in the stream of moment-to-moment change. There's a thought, a sound, a body sensation. You, you have to jump in. You might have a thought and and get lost in it. Come out. You jump in, and the anchoring we'll talk about more. But the anchoring is a way to stabilize. We need to anchor. So with the, we'll offer the breath. We'll offer sound. We'll offer you know the front of the body or the body sitting or sitting touching sitting hands or hearing hands. It's like um, a way to stabilize and practice the concurrence with a smaller momentary segment. So you stabilize. The rhythm of Vipassana is stabilizing, just letting loose, stabilizing, letting loose. And please don't think anchoring is some kind of baby step. It's not. Sometimes we like super need it, like all day for days if we're having a hard time. And sometimes we don't hardly need it at all, or don't need it at all. But it's it's skillful means. It's not like, um, again, a remedial practice. You can hear that's a bit of my, a pit, pet peeve of mine, but it's like, ah, uh, we just have so much judgment. So I, I tend to teach, you know, the anchors, or we do all of us as a, you know, kind of, I think of it as plan A, plan B, plan C, right? And then you'll have plan D, plan E, you know, the Brahma Viharas, plan F. It's like, wow, you have a lot of options. If, it get, if you need more stability, more stability, more stability versus flowing with the stream. And sometimes you're sort of on the surface and sometimes you're deeply immersed in it. And when you're deeply immersed in it, you actually less know and know, less know. You, you, le, you know less and less, cerebrally, of what's happening. Of course, um, the idea is that at this moment-to-moment change of experience at our six sense doors, a fully enlightened being, Um, it is said to have peace with each moment at each sense door. So that it's the end of the aversion and attachment and delusion with with each sense door, if you can imagine. The idea is liberation or peace. So that if you're new or medium old student, you can taste a moment of this or moments of this or hours of this. The means and the ends are the same in this practice. This is what's so heartening. It's just the fully enlightened being has practiced it to being able to not have the aversion and attachment come up anymore, etc. There's more to that, but it's like peace at any sense door. When you start to get what that means, then you start to get, oh, it can happen at another sense door, another sense door. Another sense door. We all want peace. Look at this planet. But it's that reminder, it's it's not you don't see that many fully enlightened beings walking around for a reason. It takes hard work, hard work for wisdom to penetrate the heart. It's the most noble thing we can do. I'd like to end with a um, paragraph from a book called Snow in the Summer by Ujotaka, a very dear friend of Steve's, and I know him pretty well. Sort of. Not a lot, but... He wrote this quite a long time ago. I don't want judgment. I want understanding. I am also not perfect. I am becoming even more imperfect. So I'm scared of those who are judgmental. I want to be left alone. They say a monk shouldn't be attached to anybody or anything, but I can't do that. I'm not just a monk. I'm also a human being. I am not trying to be somebody. I just try my best to understand whatever is happening in my life, in my mind, and in my heart. No name and no fame. And when I die, nothing will remain. Let's sit for a minute.